Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be, page 748 in the seat Bibles, if that would be of service to you. Happy to be back in my post this week. Thank you for your kind words, your prayers that all of you have given me since my time back. Thank you to Dale for taking over the, um, the privileged task of the teaching and preaching of God's Word. If you're wondering why we're in Luke chapter 23, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 26, about five verses. We uh, have been working through Luke now for about a year and a half. We're going to be concluding by July, um, just to let you know. And so that is the reason why we are in this particular verse this morning. So, Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Let's uh, hear the Word of the Lord together. As they led him away, the him, of course, is Christ. As they led Christ away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made it, him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren woman, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Amen. May the Lord bless the reading over those six verses. Let's bow together just for a brief prayer to seek the help that we need. Our God and Father, we pray this morning that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us our Savior, and that you, God, please, would make this book live in us. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, the trial is now over. The crucifixion is underway. The trial, as we learned in itself, was bogus. It was done in haste. Christ was taken to the Sanhedrin. A kiss in a garden started the whole wretched procedure. Then from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, then back to Pilate again. And then the struggle between Pilate and the people and the struggle between Pilate and Pilate. Christ then scourged. He was beaten to a pulp crowned with thorns, the mocking crowds, the mocking soldiers, the mocking kings, then off to die. All of this taking place in less than six hours. Six hours from trial to a sentence to a death on a cross. Never was someone so hurried out of this world than Christ was. Again, never was someone so hurried out of this world as Christ was. This is the greatest story that was ever told. Uh, and the greatest person who ever lived is right in the thick of it. And this greatest person who ever lived, who is the Son of God, as the story takes him to a cross, is at every turn to all but the eyes of faith. At every turn, he's losing. 
He's losing in the courtrooms. He's losing in the court of public opinion. He's lost his closest friends. He's losing his humanity. He's losing his dignity. He's taking hits and beatings to the point where no one can no longer really recognize him. A form, this is Isaiah 52, a form marred, marred behind, but beyond, excuse me, human likeness. And he will shamefully be stripped bare as he hangs. He who is God's anointed is now God's afflicted. He who is God's precious son is now God's sacrificial lamb that must be slaughtered, that must die this way if all sin for all time is to be atoned for. And Christ himself said, these things have to happen this way if the scripture is going to be fulfilled. Now this is a paradox Beyond human comprehension, this is Christianity. God, who always does everything right and who never needs to change, is going to deal with humanity's sin. He's going to deal with my sin and your sin through the death of an innocent man. For no one could deny that Jesus Christ was um, wrongly sentenced. Pilate couldn't do that. Herod, the religious, not even the crowds, not even other religions deny the goodness of Jesus Christ. An innocent man is going to die and God is letting it take place. Point of fact, in the Bible by the pen of Luke at the mouth of Peter says it like this. This is Acts 2.23 and Peter so close to his failure has given the privilege to preach a lesson to me. And this is what he says. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Wicked men moved by hate. A holy God moved by love. And all of human history will be altered by this event. Every point of human history all of human history has to say something, has to believe something, has to decide something in light of this event. And people, dear people, we would be so well to play close attention this morning. For the whole orientation of the ministry of Jesus in Luke's gospel is that Jesus is reaching out to those who know themselves as the last, the least, the lowest, and left out sinners. Because the best and the brightest and the highest can never seem to find a need for a Savior. So as we consider Jesus' example here, and Jesus is our example in everything, and as we consider Jesus in his suffering this morning, how he has laid down a pattern for us all in his sufferings, that this Jesus had not come together to put a together a group of religious superstars or religious champions. You'll never get that from the Gospels. He has not come to together to put us together to to have a, a marina full of Christian boats that never go out to sea, that always sail in the harbor so we can point at one another's boats and comment on one another's dictions of how we did it, our future renovations, our future plans. Rather, Jesus has called people to himself who know themselves hopeless and helpless and sin-filled and called us not only to save us, but called us so that we might set sail. Set sail into difficult waters, into a very difficult world, following our master to his cross and following our master, quite frankly, with a cross. He's called us to be like William Booth. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who said, some seek to live within the sound of church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. 
You see, this is Christ. This is Christ in all this. This is the only way that sin can be dealt with. There wasn't something else God could have offered or concocted here. That which brings death, which is sin, can only be destroyed by death. But not just any death. So we have to glory in God's way. And in order to glory it, we have to understand it. So to these difficult verses this morning, at least they were for me, we now go. And as we often do, we'll have a few headings to kind of guide us through these verses. The first of which which is the cross of Christ, beginning in verse 26. Now Luke tells us by way of his careful investigation that a gentleman named Simon from Cyrene, verse 26a there, if your Bibles are open, as Jesus was being let out, he, Simon, was on his way in and he was seized. Fascinating, isn't it? This made me thought of 9-11, quite frankly, and the, 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 the um, firemen were going up the building and those who were seeking to save their lives were going down the building before the building was uh, destroyed. You have one man on his way out of the city. Only unclean things by dent of Jewish law were destroyed outside the city gate. That's why the cross is out there. And one man is on his way into the holy city. Now we know from Mark's gospel that Simon had at least two children. This man carrying the cross. He tells us their names in chapter 15, Mark does, of his gospel. Alexander and Rufus. And so this gentleman left his home, Cyrene or Cyrene, depending on uh, how people interpret it, both are accepted. And Cyrene won't mean much of anything to most of us until we get help from an ancient map. And then we take that ancient map and we get a modern map and we compare the two and then we can discover that this man came from Tripoli in modern day Libya in northern Africa. He apparently was a Jew from the diaspora living in Libya in Cyrene. So from the country into the city, verse 26b, Simon goes. There's a crowd there and there is Christ there. There is a bloody, beaten Christ, and on Jesus Christ is the mechanism of his death being carried on his back. Now, no doubt, to Simon's surprise, the Roman soldiers seize him, and we're told to, he was told to carry the cross beam of Christ. So the soldiers are not doing this out of compassion, but completion, the completion of Christ's crucifixion, because Jesus is too weak right now to carry his own cross. And so within a mere moment here, outside the gate of the holy city on a routine journey, Simon finds himself carrying the cross of Christ, walking behind the bloody, beaten body of Jesus of Nazareth. And surely whatever Simon didn't know about Jesus, he begins to find out. And in an apparently, but certainly not random occasion, this guy's life is dramatically altered. No doubt in the years that followed Simon's life, this is one of those stories he would tell his children and and grandchildren. It would have to be. There I was, Simon would say, minding my own business, and the soldier sees me in a cross, and there you go. Now, the fact that we even know that Simon had two sons, as we were told in Mark's Gospel, Alexander and Rufus, leads us to a safe thought that says, The reason why Mark mentioned Simon's son, Alexander, and Rufus was because probably they were known to the early church. Now think with me now. I know it's summertime, but we still have to think in the summertime, right? The Gospels were first written to the early church. They received them. And when the initial readers read them, they they weren't saying, I wonder where Cyrene is. 
They knew where Cyrene was. And when the gospel had Mark's name on it, they knew who Mark was. And when they read the names of Simon and his son Alexander and Rufus, they knew those fellows too. Mark essentially was name dropping. And presumably they came to faith in Christ, Christ, part of the believing church, so that their names mattered. And on some level they could be found and spoken to. So, so tell me, Mark or Alexander or Rufus especially, tell me what your dad said happened on that day. And they could tell them. Consequently, somehow, probably the Simon who was seized became the Simon who was converted. The Simon who was ordered to take up his cross and follow Christ by soldiers became the Simon who discovered that if he would follow Jesus Christ, he must take up a cross and follow him. So that somewhere along the journey of Simon's life, more than likely, he had taken the words Jesus had spoken to heart. And I know most of you know what those words are. Anyone, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And we are far enough along in Luke's gospel to know that there's no difference between a disciple and a Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of this difference. They're not two levels of faith in Christ. And so by way of their father's encounter, possibly is how Alexander and Rufus came to faith in Christ following him just like their father did. Now, if that is the case, and I think it most likely is because lots of other people and secondary history tells us this is true, This is a wonderful stroke of genius by the gospel writers. This is kind of like an insider story. Allowing the first readers, now listen carefully, allowing the first readers who, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, were suffering so much for the sake of Christ, suffering for the proclamation of the gospel only, mark that, possibly a bit confused because all they were doing was saying that this 30-something-year-old young man who was bloodied and beaten and put on a cross and died was actually risen and was actually the Savior of the world. In fact, he's the only risen Savior of the world. And the first readers would read this in the midst of this story, in the midst of their suffering, and they would have to come to this wonderful conclusion that when Jesus Christ was at his weakest, when Satan seemed at his mightiest, when humanity was at its most wretched, when everything seemed, if you would, out of whack, because hell seemed to be winning at every point, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was working in the quietest of ways because this little family was being saved. Now, now, do you understand this? And can we not glory in this? This is, this is nothing like pal, zoom, 21st century venue, lights, camera, action, Christianity. Too often we try to baptize much of what the world does and call it Christian and say, there you go. But maybe not because this is fantastic. If you have a messed up son or daughter or if you have a messed up son or daughter-in-law, messed up grandchildren, friends, husbands, wives, co-workers, and at every point the whole thing seems to be like they're losing and you're losing. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no Christ in heaven? Is there no sovereign God on the throne? Is not the grace of Christ able to work in the most impossible, in the most unlikely situations, in the quietest of ways, in ways that he will receive all the glory Does not God save the most unlikely? I mean, you're looking at one right now. 
My, my wife and I have a young relative. He's in a very difficult place. No, no signs of Christ in the home at all. Point of fact, the, the home is, is a bit hostile to Jesus Christ. And the, the home is kind of like rated PG-13 or maybe rated R. But out of the blue recently, out of the blue, the little fellow says, I want to be a Christian. I want to be baptized. Now, how in the world did that happen? I can tell you in part how it happened, in the quietest of ways, in the most unseemly of ways. Jesus Christ was working out his purposes and calling in his elect. And at every point of this story, there is no victory. There is no success to all but the eyes of faith. Because a man and his family will come to know Christ. And dear friends, Jesus Christ has not ceased in these wonders of his grace today. And beyond all this, if all this is conjecture, what we must recognize here in century 21 is that, G that Simon carrying this cross behind Jesus is a visible, a very visible reminder of what it truly means to be a believer. Jesus said it. I read it. Discipleship was about carrying a cross. And to carry a cross was to engage in, to serve, and to love a humanity that scorns our king and so scorns us. For that reason, <clears throat> excuse me, the disciples of Jesus Christ in the first century, as they came on the scene, they were not known and not marked by how they dressed, that they dressed in a certain way, and then that's how people knew they were Christians. The disciples of Jesus Christ were not identified by what they ate, what they listened to, or books they carried around with them. They didn't have really books to carry around with them. They were not marked by success. No, none of these things. They had no outward badges of identification that the people could point to and say, yes, there they are. They're the Christians. The disciples of Jesus were recognized as people of the cross. They were cross carriers, at least symbolically. They knew what we are coming to understand more and more, that the story of Jesus Christ is a story of the cross. The story of the Bible is not a how-to story. It's a story about the cross. The cross defined all their identities. Think of that. Ladies, just think of that for a moment. The cross of Jesus Christ defined their identity. Young people think about it. Men think about it. It's the only thing they let define their identity. The cross of Jesus Christ. It was the basis of all their unity. What was the rally point? It wasn't because we looked alike, acted alike, or kind of was in the same social status and all that stuff. No, none of that. It's because they based their unity on the fact that Jesus Christ had come to sin die for sinful people like us. And it was the framework of all their activity. In other words, if the Christians were going to get in trouble by the outside world, it was only because they were proclaiming the gospel. Nothing more. Nothing more. Because... Why is that so important? Well, it's so important that we have to be a cross-centered people with a cross-centered message because all of history was moving towards that cross. And having arrived at that cross, all of history would be and will be judged in light of that cross of Jesus Christ. So the cross then is the fulcrum point of everything because here and the death of Christ is the only answer to their sins and to our sins. It was their only way, the first century church as well as the 21st century church, the only way to access to God. It's the only way that we're righteous. We, don't, we aren't making ourselves righteous. We are made righteous. And they're the only hope, this cross of entry into heaven and so victory over death. 
But if all they recognized in the first century that the message of the cross was, you know, that was just the messy bit. Now, this is step one. It's the kind of the uncomfortable part of the story. We're really kind of embarrassed about it. We hate to say things about the blood of Jesus Christ uh, to people. And we got our personal, personal forgiveness, check, then we can forget about it. In other words, if all the story of the cross is, okay, get saved, did it, then onward with your life, the early church would say, what in the dickens are you talking about? The Bible would say, what in the dickens are you talking about? Because they understood that the message of the cross was engraved in their lives. It was stamped on their lives. If you like, they had a cross-given limp, understanding that Jesus had dealt with their sins on the cross. And in some way, that cross was to be reproduced in their lives. Now, summer reading. I'm rereading Norman Brock's classic book, A Concise History of the Early Church. And it it tells us about the first 400 years of the church. And he makes his point so plain of why the early church grew so rapidly in the first few hundred years. And one of his main points was, is because they had a cross-shaped existence by lip and by life. Wonderful phrase, isn't it? A cross-shaped existence by lip and And by life, they gloried in it, they lived with it, they spoke about it, they just reveled in the fact that Jesus Christ had come and bore their sins on the cross. Because of this, because of this, as we seek out to live for Jesus Christ in these days, our message and our methods are to be cross-shaped. We don't have any other alternative. There is no other way. We are to arm ourselves in this way. 1 Peter 4. We are to let this mind be in us. Philippians 2. That this great work of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, in our lives is to fashion us into the image of Jesus Christ. Which Christ? The Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Gospels. The Christ on the cross who is now resurrected and ascended. So if we're going to truly live for Christ in these days as we are instructed to by the Gospels, then this picture of Simon... Behind Jesus carrying the cross is a picture that we have to keep in our minds. This is how Christianity is to be lived out in planet earth. This is our method and this is our only message. Is it difficult? Oh, you bet it is. Is it glorious? Oh, you bet it is. Therefore, just think with me for a moment again. If we're going to make any impact whatsoever in the culture along the lines that Jesus said we should do in the Gospels, Then again, this picture of Simon carrying the cross, moving behind Jesus, is a picture that we have to lock in our heads as we step out these doors this morning into the given places of our lives. Now, if we do not do this, it is to our disgrace. It is to our disgrace that we would put in our context and our county to our families and friends and neighbors a crossless Christ. Or if you like, a crossless Christianity. So someone would ask, what would a crossless Christianity look like? And I'm going to give you at least part of the answer. Part of the answer of what a crossless Christianity would look like is at least this. A crossless Christianity would be expressed in terms of being successful, having it all together, having all the answers, never making mistakes, strolling through the world as if we were the masters of our fate and captains of our lives, dealing with a God who only indulges and never demands. I'm going to say this again. This is a crossless Christianity. A crossless Christianity is expressed in terms of real Christianity, 
Are real Christians always being successful, having it all together, having all the answers, never making mistakes, and strolling through the world as we were the masters of our faith and the captains of our lives, dealing with a God who always indulges but never demands? In other words, a crossless Christianity is so much like popular Christianity these days. And Popular Christianity, I would say, is mostly framed within those categories that I've given to you. And this is futile, it is useless, it is dangerous, it is powerless, and it is wrong. Because what it does, it communicates to our context, to our county, a standard that we don't even keep and live if we were honest. I mean, right? If we were really honest, do you have all the answers? Do you have it all together? Is everything going your way? Do you always do it right? Is your life completely fixed? Is God's providence always working out perfect for you? No. I bet if we were honest, if we were really honest, many people here today would say that much of their lives is lived in a kind of quiet nervous tension or a quiet desperation. And just in case, and I hope not, but just in case there may be a few of us who say, yeah, we don't live that way at all. We've got it all together. Well, then I want you to consider this. If you're constantly accustomed to exercising power and control over your lives, always thinking you get it right because you've got it your way or you feel it, then what happens? Well, I think it becomes very difficult to acknowledge the power and the control and the sovereign might and the need of grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, all you have to do is consider the religious orthodoxy of the Pharisees. Because our blind, a sinful nature would blind us more and more so that our fallen thoughts unchecked, which are wrong, they would seem to begin to more and more sound like Christ himself was speaking to us. And that's wrong. So if we portray a standard that we don't live by, we will make no meaningful contact with a messed up world. And with those whose circumstances are broken, fallen individuals who don't have an answer, those who think they have no hope at all, those that have nothing to live for, those that just run away from people that are self-righteous, know-it-all, silly man, silly woman, silly pastor, run from a Pharisee, always thinking the Pharisee that they have the right answer, just let me at them. And so if we would walk out of a place like this and present to others a crossless Christianity, what good would it do? I met a young lady kind of recently. She's an unwed mother four times. She's still in her early 20s. I said to her, how are you? She said to me, not well. And she began to tell me the, just the sad story of her life. And then she ends her story with, my life is over. And I told her, that her life is not over. Now, do you believe that? Now, what do you think Jesus Christ thinks of that young lady? I mean, we all, we all the whole idea, the economic part of four kids and all that kind of stuff, and there's a part of us would say, honey, good luck. But that would be a crossless Christianity. What do you think Jesus Christ thinks of this young lady? Is the cross of Jesus Christ not capable to bear her sin, to bear her hopelessness, to bear her failures, and to keep bearing them to her very end? What do you think the answer is that? But if we take a crossless Christianity, if we take moralism to her, if we take four steps how-to to her, what do we really have to say to her? 
What do we really have to say? That's point one, the cross of Jesus Christ. Point two, the reply of Jesus Christ. Verse 28. Now Jesus is on the road, uh, the Via Della Rosa. He's on his way to Skull Hill on his cross. The narrow roads that are part of of the Via Della Rosa are pressed with people. So it would be very easy for Christ to have this conversation that he has there with these daughters of Jerusalem in verse 27b. These, these women were mourning and wailing for Jesus. Jesus had plenty of lady friends who ministered to him and to the 12 in all kinds of practical ways. We read that in the earlier part of Luke. But there's nothing here that would tell us that those ladies were these ladies. These are just normal inhabitants watching what was going on in Jerusalem. And as you would suspect, they are moved, they are struck by the whole ugliness of the situation. How this preacher, whose name was Jesus, who never did anything wrong to anybody, was being treated by the authorities. That he was given no justice and he was given no mercy at all. And so there's no surprise that their hearts have been struck this way and they're behaving as they were. I mean, it would almost be natural. And equally, there would be Real no surprise if Jesus would have just turned to them and just acknowledged them after this and said, well, thank you. Or maybe something like, water, please. Or maybe just giving a look that would convey that he appreciates their pity and it really meant a lot to him. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to them and he speaks to them. Now, if Simon was shocked because he was seized to carry a cross... These, these women would have had to been shocked by Christ and what he said. Verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. In other words, what Jesus is saying is your sympathy is understandable, but it's misdirected. You should weep for yourself. You shouldn't weep for me. Now, is this not upside down? There's something else Jesus said that is more important than me that you should weep for. Now, what did Jesus weep for in the gospel? Well, he wept over Jerusalem. Why did he weep over Jerusalem? Well, he said, and I'm quoting Jesus now, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. He said, if Jerusalem would have known on this day what would bring you peace, but your eyes are closed to it. He says, Luke 19, the day will come when your enemies, Jerusalem, will will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, I want you to have this picture. There's this disfigured, bloody, flesh-open oozing of a man, just broken, unrecognizable of a man. And he is redirecting their tears. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Again, this is an almighty, uh, just a paradox. I am so certain, I'll find out when I get in heaven, I am so certain that these ladies, when Jesus said that, would be like, I bet you all the tears stopped. And be like, what? Where does the strength of this scene lie? Who is the safest here? Jesus meets their pity with reality. Jesus meets their pity with reality. 1.2 million inhabitants will be murdered in 70 AD by Roman might because of their unbelief. 
This is verse 44, chapter 19. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That is hard and harsh, but it's biblical reality. You see, these ladies were on it enough. They, they could extend sympathy to a sorry side of a man. He didn't get justice, the tears, and the mourning. Uh, this man's dignity is all lost. The tears and the mourning, they make sense. But Jesus didn't want their sympathy. He wants their repentance. Jesus did not want their sympathy. He wants their repentance. He's telling them that there's coming a day that will change all the usual lines of thinking. That's verse 29, right? There was a day when a baby was a blessed thing. And not to have a baby was a curse, or at least it seemed like a curse. No longer on that day, the happy woman is going to be the barren woman. The happy woman is the woman who never gave birth and never nursed. Everyone will look at the barren woman as a blessed woman. Indeed, he goes on to say, verse 29 and 30, death will be preferred over what awaits them. They will say, verse 30, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. In other words, we want to die. We want to die. So these dear daughters' pity was met with reality because Christ doesn't need pity. He doesn't desire pity. He tells them, cry for yourself. Now, it would almost seem in our time that he's being a bit rude here. But I just want to say a few things. First of all, it's possible that people have pictures of Jesus like this. Pictures of him bloodied and beating and, and, and maybe even jewelry with Jesus hanging on him and statues with Jesus hanging on a cross. And they could look at those things and have sympathy for Jesus and feel like because the tears flow that that makes everything okay. That does not make everything okay. Repentance and believing on him as Lord is still needed. Tears are never the ultimate test of sincerity. Because the reality is that Jesus Christ is not on the cross this morning. He's on a throne. And listen carefully as we close. He's on a throne. And his next big move is to return for his own. So the big question that I asked, for, I asked of you is, are you his own? See, that's the big question. Are you his own? Are we his own? I mean, you know, religious art can only take you so far. A religious movie can only take you so far. Jesus has the, the reins of his death completely in his bloody hands. Jesus is fulfilling duty. He's under control. To his very last breath, he's trying to save people. To his very last breath, he's trying to get people to repent. Why? Why? Because he knows what's coming to them and he knows he's coming back to us. He's coming back one day to gather us as a hen would gather her chicks. He knows history is coming to a close. You know that your history, I know that my history is coming to a close, but not everybody believes this. And you may be here this morning and you don't believe this. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to die, but after that, none of this silly cross stuff. So I have to ask you again, are you ready today for that day? Because the very same terminology that Jesus uses here in Luke Guess what? John uses the same kind of terminology in the book of Revelation chapter 6 when he talks about the end. Let me just read it to you. The judgment of God is open. The seals of God's judgment are open. Then he says, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, 
And every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called onto the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? What is, the, what is the great thirst of our day? Life, right? Life, life, quality life. Give me life, give me life. And just heaps of it. What will be the great cry as the judgment unfolds for those outside of Christ? Death. Death. I want to die. So you have the cross of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that there's no Christianity without a cross. And to follow him is to follow him that way. You have the reply of Christ, reminding us the danger of tears with no repentance, of pity that hasn't really met reality, of weeping for Christ, but never ever weeping for sins. And you have this assertion of Christ. It's real simple. It'll take a second. Jesus wraps it all up with, this, with essentially now is the day of salvation. Verse 31. If men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? You guys, it could not have gotten any better for Jerusalem. You had the very Son of God. He comes to them. He calls to them. He heals them. He helps them. He preaches to them. He offers himself to them. He endures him just them. They can't get it. They can't get it, and they will not repent, even though everything was ripe for repentance. And I want you to think to yourself, can it, can it get any better for you this morning? Those of you who stand in need of a Savior, can it get any better for, than this? What, are you waiting for a sign? Are you waiting for a sign? If you get the sign and the feeling, then, then you'll just give yourself to Jesus Christ. Or I hope you haven't made like a deal with God and you said, okay, if you do this, then I'll believe you. Or I hope you haven't done that. Listen carefully and with this I'm closed as we prepare to meet at the table. Now, Dearly beloved, treasured, possession, beautiful person, if you hear God's voice, please, now, do not harden your heart. I thank you for your attention. Let's bow for a brief prayer. If the men, the elders of our congregation would come forward as we prepare for communion. God and Father, we know that the gospel is death that leads to resurrection. The gospel is weakness that results in triumphant exaltation. That the way the gospel worked in Christ, the way it worked in Paul, is the way it was working us. We ask for the grace that we need now to respond to the call when it comes. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.